Hello and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garman. And I'm Drew Evans. Well, at the time we are recording this episode, it's been just a couple days since AMTA released the 2021-2022 case packet up until Orcs. Of course, we'll get a new case for Nationals. That case is the State of Midlands versus Dakota Sutcliffe, uh, and that case was written by the Criminal Case Committee. We are thrilled to be joined here today, back on the podcast, by the chair of the Criminal Case Committee, Neil Shewitt. Neil, of course, has a storied history in AMTA. He's a two-time national champion as a competitor, a uh, one-time national champion as the executive director of Miami University Mock Trial, one of the best programs in AMTA. And he serves as the chair of AMTA's Criminal Case Committee uh, and was the chair uh, when they wrote and released this case. Neil, thanks so much for taking time to come back on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you on. And, and I think this case, honestly, I as soon as I read through it, I, I had a ton of questions. And we want to thank everyone who sent us in some questions. We had a lot of people reach out and say, hey, can you ask this or this? So we're going to try to go through as much as we can in the time that we've got. So, Neil, I'm going to start with really the obvious one. I want to ask about the inspiration for this case. How did you all come up with the topic? And it's kind of a two-parter. I, I, I'd be interested in hearing First, just, you know, how'd you come up with arson? Uh, that's a, an interesting topic. And of course, you know, you burn down Chuggies, which I saw has produced some strong responses and thoughts. How from the dare you, by the way? <laughs> how dare you? Yeah, that's basically what I've seen people I say. I grew but up also, there, basically. <laughs> also, uh, you've got this fascinating aspect involving this being a retrial where it was originally a felony murder conviction that was then uh, overturned. And now it's an arson case. So can you give us kind of the background on how both of those concepts came together? Sure. So the retrial came first. Uh, hmm. I had wanted to do, well, I guess really the way it works is, you know, when you're in the committee, you you talk about potential crimes when you're in the, the case committee for the criminal case, right? And so kind of threw some stuff out there. And I've always wanted to do something kind of related to felony murder, but with like the getaway driver, right? Who is on the very edges of felony murder or having the officer during the chase, you know, a pedestrian is killed or something, you know, there's something that kind of brings to light the controversial nature of felony murder. So we were talking about that. And I also had always kind of wanted to see what would happen if we did something that had been appealed and people had to use transcripts, right? Trial transcripts and all of the opportunities that that would give us. So all of that talk kind of went back and forth until we had settled on, okay, we'll do a retrial, felony murder, and then we had to pick the underlying felony. And so we went back and forth, and I've been on multiple case committees, and arson has always kind of come up and then been batted down for something that takes a lot of time. And if you're going to do arson, you want to do it right. And so we had enough time. We had started talking about, I think, this topic sort of after the turn of the year, because if, you know, I wanted to kind of see what everyone was thinking. So we, we thought we had enough time to actually get experts, arson experts and everybody uh, involved. And so that's how it happened. It was really more maybe felony murder, hey, retrial, and then underlying felony arson, which I know has been something everyone has talked about for years. And so we finally thought, well, here we go. Yeah. And it's, it's so funny you say that about arson being something people talk about, because you know, I've gotten to read the case, you know, a couple of times and I love, I mean, I think it's a great case. I, I really do. But the detail 
of the expert reports, I think is going to be a lot of fun. I think there's a lot of really unique challenges in there. Uh, but, but one, and we've got a question about that a little later on, but one thing I wanted to sort of follow up on is related to this notion of a retrial. Um, how did you feel? And obviously you said this was something you were interested in doing. How did you sort of approach the challenge of, okay, you've got previous trial transcripts. And of course, you know, in, in a real life and one of the types of cases that you do, those trial transcripts would be hundreds and hundreds of pages and have so much sort of content and stuff. Of course, you can't do that in, in an AMTA case. And so you guys sort of put excerpts of a couple of witnesses who testified. How do you feel like you and the committee approached the the challenge, I guess is the word I'll use, of accurately portraying a retrial within the constraints of a mock trial case? Yeah, so great question. One we definitely talked about for a long time. If, again, we were going to do a retrial, we wanted to do it right and realistically. So one of the ways we thought that we could get around essentially handing everyone a direct across and objections, right? Because that's what you're doing. If you have a retrial on the same elements, then we would have been writing everybody's direct across. So we didn't want to do that. So we thought, well, if we're changing the offense, then, you know, you, you've got that leeway that perhaps the questions that are being asked in the original trial aren't relevant to the new trial. Um, but, you know, still provides the structure of what a direct looks like because, you know, we're writing this case for the top teams in, in AMTA, but we're also writing the, this case for the newest teams in AMTA. So, you know, it does help give them some structure if they don't have any attorney coaches, but we wanted to avoid saying like, okay, this is how we want the direct of this particular witness to go because we don't, right? We want creativity and to give teams flexibility. So we balanced it that way. Um, and then having excerpts, right? We didn't handle everything that could have happened in a felony murder trial, all the exhibits. So we, we tried to make it a little bit narrow and still understand the the boundaries, I guess, if you will, of a closed universe. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. And that's honestly a point I hadn't really thought about, that you have this retrial that's for a different charge. And so there's you know a lot of things that maybe wouldn't be applicable. Uh, just one more question on that before we move on. Uh, I was fascinated to see, um, you know, affidavits, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes here, that are not traditional affidavits. You know, we've seen affidavits, we've seen depositions, but at least in my time in AMTA, which has now, you know, been about a decade, uh, I don't specifically remember seeing, you know, an affidavit be sort of something like previous trial testimony. Uh, so I feel like that's something I've seen at the law school level, but not at the AMTA level. Do you know if that's sort of thing is something that's been done before? And did you all have any conversations about how you were going to, you know, make sure that there was complete information in those, you know, what are what are essentially affidavits, even though they're presented in question and answer form? Right. So um, I've been in, I think my AMTA career is old enough to drink at this point. So <laughs> I can tell you in my time in AMTA, I haven't seen it done that way. So I, I do think this is yet one more new element, perhaps, that this case is throwing at people. And and I think it'll play well, and hopefully it play well. Um, we, we thought about that, too. Like, well, we'll give them some stuff in a retrial, and we'll give them, some, you know, our transcripts uh, from the first trial. And then we'll give them some stuff now more specific to the new offense and see what people do with it. I think an overarching theme of the case committee when we did this was 
we want to give people lots of pivot points or options. And I think that's what you're seeing is you can go one direction, you can go another. I think it, there's a lot of flexibility in the joints with this case. So, Neil, I think this is a question that we asked you last time, but I, I want to both remind people and also kind of update it. Um, but how exactly did the case writing process work for you guys this year? And specifically, if there were any changes or uh, differences with the process given the the you know state of the world? Yeah, fair, right? Well, I mean, for a long time, it was asking President Harper, you know, do, do we have any idea if this is supposed to be in person or not? Um, I think you saw last year uh, increased use, obviously, of, of demonstratives because that's what we had available to us, right, was to use PowerPoints and everything. Um, and certainly there's a lot of avenues we could go down in an arson case if we were all online the whole year. So we, we kept that in mind. Um, I think the biggest difference was I wasn't at the board meeting this year. Um, and there's a you know chunk of time that the criminal case committee or any case committee meets uh, before during committee meetings. So we met for like three hours over Zoom. Um, a good chunk of them were there. And, and the reason I was not there wasn't actually COVID related. I just had a jury trial the next week. So I was preparing for trial. Yeah, that enough. trial did not win out over a real trial <laughs> in that sense. So um, it, it's a lot of heavy lifting. I think the process was very, you know, it's email based. It's maybe a Zoom call or a phone call, like most of the committees. But a, a lot of the heavy lifting typically will happen when you're in person because you can kind of what I'll call beautiful mind it, right? You can write it up on boards and you can kind of visualize and you can do all those things that you don't do otherwise. But we have been piecemealing it together. And then I think we really fell in love with the idea of what we wanted to do at the board meeting and then took the stuff that we already had, kept shaping it. Um, that, that's typically how most of the committees have been on handle it, either as chair or members, is that it, you know, it's, it's a group project, so you get all that sort of group project scheduling conflicts. And, and one of the great things about this committee is I think we're all litigators. The problem with that is we had to line up our calendars um, <laughs> across all four time zones of the United States. So, you know, I think when you can get us all in one room focusing, like, you know, mock trial students in general, then, then a lot of magic happens. And I think that's what happened uh, again with this case. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the fact that you guys are all you know, real life litigators that you even were dealing with a jury trial during the board meeting. Um, one of the things that I noted about this case uh, is is the fact that this is a situation where the defendant um, is, is not able to testify um, and that they're not going to be allowed to use that. So was there any motivation or rationale of that's more quote unquote realistic and less mock trial esque to not have the defendant testify. Yes, that was definitely discussed. Um, and it is more realistic. Um, you know, defense attorneys for criminal litigators are either one of two camps, you know, you always put them on or you never put them on. And so we discussed that. Um, I, I think, AMTA has gone through a little bit of an evolution on how to handle criminal defendants because in an attempt to be more realistic, you saw AMTA getting away from written affidavits, right? Mm -hmm. That 
yeah. defendants had more flexibility because maybe they had an interview with the police um, or, or something like that, but they didn't have full locked in statements because we were getting a lot of feedback from judges that just wasn't realistic. But you have to balance that with case balance and mock trial and, and everything else. So we discussed, you know, what do we want to do? Um, and we thought, well, let's, let's see what happens when they don't have the defendant. And I think one of the things, again, was a choose your own adventure, right? The defendant defense teams now don't get to, uh, if you want to think about the game theory of it all, just put 12 minutes or whatever on a defendant. You know, they got to figure out what they're going to do. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring up how it really does affect the defense, because in my mind, um, and you know, I could be wrong about how this affects it, but I feel like that's such a strength of most defenses to be able to just do whatever they want with that defendant and allows for, you know, you get the really wacky, creative case theories. Um, but it, it definitely, like, I think it's always been this added club for the defense that at the end of the day, up until that defendant comes up, you can pull whatever you want out of your rear, and there's nothing the plaintiff can re- or prosecution, sorry, can do um, about that. So, do you think that it, by restricting the defense and not allowing a uh, a you know affidavitless defendant to testify, was there any uh, like balancing that happened to account for the maybe p bias that might occur from restricting defense teams in that way? Uh, again, sort of, I guess behind the scenes a little bit on how the, the hot dogs are made. I mean, you, you have to write a case in criminal case committee that essentially Sutcliffe did it, right? I mean, you, you <laughs> yeah. have to kind of, when you're going in throughout the case, put all that in there for the merits just so that the prosecution doesn't get the comment all the time. This would never go to trial. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, the balance was always, but then defense teams got up there and they said something totally crazy and the prosecution can't call rebuttal witnesses. And in that sense, the game of mock trial is exposed. Right. And so we, we talked about it and we, we said, well, let's try to give these defense teams something else to think about. And, you know, everyone's getting treated the same. Everyone cannot call Sutcliffe. Um, and so I think we're interested to see how that works out. Uh, and I think the counterbalance was we also threw in the new, I guess, wrinkle of a pure 404 witness, you know, and so I thought that was an interesting trade-off is, well, we won't give you the defendant, but we're going to give someone that in the real world we call character witnesses, not, you know, Cooper, the homeless guy, but <laughs> someone who comes in and is talking about the positive character traits of the defendant, mm-hmm. uh, which is very common in criminal cases, especially if you do not call the defendant. And so, you know, that was a new wrinkle too. And so to answer your question, Drew, I think more on point is, you don't have the defendant, but you do have an option, I think, if you want at least that heartwarming testimony. It's really interesting that you bring up that witness specifically, because that was definitely something that stood out to me as something I feel like, you know, I don't do criminal law, but I was a criminal law clerk for a year. And that is the type of witness that that you see in, you know, in, in criminal trials. And, and I feel like is not necessarily a witness, like you said, that you see frequently, uh, if at all. In AMTA, another thing that sort of occurred to me as you were talking, Neil, is sort of leads me into my next question. And this is a question that had been on my mind. Uh, we also got this question sent in by Daniel Sosa of UC Berkeley. Uh, and it's the notion of having only one charge. 
So of course, two years ago, two years ago with Ryder, you had the murder and manslaughter. There have been other uh, instances over the years, especially on the criminal side of things, where there's been, you know, I think all the way back even to Bancroft and Covington. So what was the rationale behind deciding in this case, okay, this is just arson. Uh, and did that decision have anything to do with, all right, if the defense doesn't have an unrestricted defendant, then we shouldn't make them, uh, you know, maybe almost balance it out a little bit and not make them prep uh, two different charges. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I'd say that's at least halfway there. We we definitely talked about juggling all the moving parts. And so we had decided pretty early that we were going to do the expert toggle. And so to counterweight that, um, we have to start thinking about balance and call order and all of those things. And we were like, well, we don't want the defense to have to prepare you know, an infinity amount of crosses or they, they need to have some strong footing to know that they can, can do X, Y, or Z. And so that was part of it is if we let the state choose both expert or not in the charges and all of these things, the defense is really juggling a lot. And I think when you had the affidavit list defendant, that was easier to juggle because they could be the catch-all. Right, they could just say right. what they wanted to say. Well, they don't have that anymore. Um, so that was, yes, definitely part of it. Um, and to again narrow, look, state, you get to choose expert or not. We're going to make you go after this one charge, um, and 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 see what happens. I mean, as famously, right? There's always orcs, so I guess we'll see what happens. Oh God! I just, <laughs> just <laughs> felt myself, uh, you know, break out into a cold sweat uh, when you said that. Um, so let me let me sort of change our tune just a little bit. And you alluded to this uh, a little bit earlier in this conversation, related to the challenges of this upcoming season and and how this case is going to be tried. Of course, a month and a half ago, we were all really hoping that things would stay the way that they were with with COVID, and things, of course, look a lot worse than they did then. I know some tournaments uh, have moved online. Ours is actually moving online. I imagine some others will follow. So how did you and the committee approach the challenge of um, knowing that it's a near certainty or given that, you know, I think AMTA is planning to have at least one virtual regional, probably a certainty that this case will be tried both in person and, and virtually. And just how did that factor into the writing and editing process as a committee? We wanted to make sure something was entertaining as well as educational, right? So, you know, one thing you don't want is video conferencing that's scripted and boring and, you know, no one's paying attention. Um, and I think that was one of the dangers of last year is, well, how do you keep judges paying attention when they can, they don't have eyes on them, right? I mean, they could be doing anything. And you don't know what they're doing because they don't have to have their cameras on. Whereas if we have something that's at least entertaining, there's a lot of colorful pictures. There's a lot of opportunity to you know, use diagrams and you know, maybe potentially whatever people are going to come up with with these experts uh, if they call them. So the thought was we can keep it entertaining. And then again, with the one charge, you know, you focused it enough that it's not going to kind of derail um, or go too long if the time requirements go back to what they were last year. The last thing you said was actually pretty much my exact next question, which is, uh, I remember when we talked to 
to Mike Gelfand uh, last year uh, when he came on to talk about the civil case last year. We talked a fair amount about the reduction in time limits, and and ultimately, you know, it was it was a little bit of an adjustment. I think there were a couple uh, uh, fall tournaments where maybe we got in like two point two crosses, and and that was kind of it. But I think we all adjusted to it. So, how did the fact that I mean, at least this case as it was released didn't didn't edit any of the time limits. So my understanding is at least right now AMTA's standard time limits are in effect uh so was there conversation behind the scenes about uh assuming that the time limits are going to stay the same or the possibility that they might get adjusted or or how did that factor into the process at all yeah sure so i mean like i said i was i was in contact with president harper probably before orcs you know just trying to get an idea of what we were thinking and I think, well, first I said, like, there's nothing in the case. Um, I'm leaving that to rules to guide us. Um, and if the right. rules committee guides us in a certain direction, we'll certainly do that. And I think I don't have it in front of me. Perhaps the way it was originally worded um, was, you know, if online or, you know, some, there was some sort of caveat. So I think it kind of defaulted back to normal times this year. Um, and, of course, we know fall invites can make time limits whatever they want, right? They're not under any AMTA rules at all. So, um, yeah, I mean, we definitely thought about it. Like I said, I think you can present a, a compelling case on both sides in the, the limited times. I think if nothing else last year made crosses shorter for the better, um, you know, people had to spend less time hearing themselves talk and, and you know, actually get to the point. So I, I think that helped. I think that's a good educational point anyway. And so, I think you can do this case in the in the time limits as far as will we have to update that, you know, oh wait, if I'm told to do so, we'll certainly we'll add that stuff in. So Neil, I wanted to talk a little bit about one of the motion oh the orders on motions in the Monet. Um and this was a question that we got a few times from different people, but specifically about the one regarding the Terror Readers Association, uh essentially uh essentially it's satisfying for the experts uh, prongs A through C of Rule 702. Um, and I'm kind of curious on a couple of different layers within it. First, kind of like just the motivation behind that. Um, was it kind of trying to make sure that experts aren't getting completely thrown out? Is it trying to guide where you want teams to be objecting to the experts? Um, is it meant to make that objection not viable at trial? Like what is the kind of motivation behind it, I guess? Fair question. Uh, some of that could certainly be tied into time constraints. I think, you know, if you have to lay all that foundation or everything gets thrown out, that can certainly be a problem when your time constraints have gone down. Um, it was another, I guess, yes, insofar as we're trying to shift focus a little. We're not saying you can't object. We're just saying, you know, it's a little bit more narrow. Uh, and part of that was so the judges didn't throw everything out. You know, if you get a judge who's a fire investigator or something like, oh, this is BS or, you know, you haven't proven X, Y, and Z. That's not on the students, right? That's on the case committee or that's just on the limited scope of a closed universe. And we were trying to minimize that if we were going to do something with a lot of science, the judges would would toss things just at without listening or ask people to lay foundation that we didn't give them. Um, 
And if we had to give everybody all the foundation possible, this was already a long case. I mean, can you imagine if we had to put in all the science and everything? <laughs> so it, it was a little bit of guiding, but I think it's also a little bit more real world <laughs> in that a lot of the time you're not going to hear objections in the real world to like 702A, right? Um, <laughs> so we were mindful of what we were doing both on time also maybe a new wrinkle for teams to, to adapt to, because I think some teams, you know, even my own teams at times just become waiting for that. And that's, <laughs> that's not real, you know, yeah. mitigating. That's not necessarily teaching people to think on their feet. So yeah. again, new challenge, like I said, there's a lot of pivot points in this case, if you go looking for them, that, you know, things can go different directions and we're, we're excited to see how that works. You know, Neil, one of the things you brought up in that answer sort of goes right into a question that I've had that's kind of come up as you were talking, and it's related to the science and the experts. That's a fascinating uh, process uh, for me just thinking about behind the scenes. And I see here you have a note at the beginning of the case that basically says the Michigan Innocence Clinic and uh, Assistant Clinical Professor Imran Syed thanking them for reviewing the forensic investigator reports. So can you take us behind the scenes a little bit of the process of generating a report like that? You, you just alluded to, obviously, you've got to trim things down a little bit from how maybe a real life expert report would be. But I know, you know, for me, as someone who's written mock trial cases before, I don't know a thing about how that type of science would work. I'm guessing at least a decent portion of the committee probably didn't have a ton of prior knowledge in the area of like, you know, fire accelerants and uh, fire patterns and, and all of that stuff. So how do you as a committee and you as chair approach uh, you know, reaching out to experts and factoring in what what they give you in terms of generating the reports that we end up seeing. In in that respect, we lucked into a connection that Devin Holstead had. Uh, he went to Michigan Law, and so he referenced back his his old professor there. So we had a little bit of an in. Um, Missy Watt had just got done with a case here, and I knew that too, that was arson. So we had a couple of places we could go. Um, all of those photographs are from a real arson case here in the Cincinnati area that I got my hands on thanks to a friend in a police department, right? So, I mean, we have hmm. some inroads that we could go to. Uh, and so that's what I think also made arson a little bit more viable this year is that we had connections that we could turn to, to make sure, like I said, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it correctly. Um, and then they were, we were lucky enough that they, they gave us their time, you know, to, to look everything over. And, and when you do that, do you, you know, the people who, who, who have real life experience in that regard, do you take like a real life report, a real life forensic investigator who maybe uh, investigates these exact types of cases and you try to format it and, and make it similar to that? Or does it change pretty drastically from how a, an actual hired expert would look to what we end up getting in the case? I think this year you have pretty real world stuff. So we didn't try to mock trial it up too much. Um, what you have is is very much on point for what an arson investigator or an arson case would be looking at. So, Neil, I think the one question that was kind of burning in me the second I found out this was going to be an arson case, and it's one that uh, I know everyone has been talking about on all of the different outlets that we have for mock trial connections, whether it's mock trial confessions or what have you, 
Um, but there's this talk of the fire demo um, in an arson case. People love doing different, you know, fun demonstratives that are kind of showing what's going on. Uh, you know, obviously, I, I think that we can all agree that we want everyone to be safe. And my endorsement to people is be smart and don't do anything totally foolish. But uh, do you think that there's a chance that you're going to have a rule that teams specifically can't do a live fire demo during a trial? I mean, I suppose that could happen. Um, <laughs> I would like to hope that smarter decisions will be made and you should read the arson statutes of where you're going carefully so that you do not get arrested for arson yourself. Um, Wouldn't that be ironic? Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, definitely. I mean, you would have real world experience there. I, it doesn't take much. Um, See, maybe that's next year's case is the mock trial team that wanted to do a live fire demo and got a charge for arson. There you go. I I should just be on the committee, Neil. (laughs) Respondeat superior suing somebody. Yeah, I I would certainly hope that, again, cooler heads, pun intended, I guess, uh, would prevail and um, no one will try that. Um, I also hope that if we're online and you think, oh, well, I'm in my own house again, <laughs> uh, don't burn down your house and um, you should look because that's a dwelling. So then you're really <laughs> definitely going to have arson charges. Um, and a lot of states now, it also has a registry so that you can't get off. of it. So, um, yeah, be smart. I feel like this is one of those situations where we're not going to say which programs everyone is sitting here thinking they're going to do a fire demo, but we all know (laughs) you're all thinking it. Um, I got one last question for you, Neil, before we wrap up. Uh, You've mentioned a couple things about, uh, you know, things about this case that that you really like. You mentioned the character uh, witness, the, you know, the the defendant character witness, and also the, the aspect of realism. Is there anything else that we haven't got a chance to talk about in terms of how this case came together that you as the case author and of course a a you know director of one of AMTA's premier programs will get to see this case in action a lot anything else in particular that you're really looking forward to just seeing okay you know how is this going to play out over over the course of the season uh, i really am interested to see how teams choose their own adventure um and and play this up you know you're going to go experts you're going to go eyewitnesses or are you going to go um alibi are you gonna blame a hero who died i mean i think there's a lot of big decisions to be made and i think all all of us on the committee are are excited to see how that will play out because i think that's going to lead to a lot of different trials over the course of a very long season um and if we all get shoved back in our houses then maybe that'll be help you know help to keep it exciting is that it won't become the same Um, So that's what I'm most excited to see. Um, I guess the only other issue is how much hate I'm going to get for burning down Chuckies. (laughs) I will say, so Dawson was my first case as, as an AMTA competitor. And I definitely, it, it, you know, it hit hard a little bit. I was definitely, I mean, here's the thing. We've seen people come back to life in these scenarios. So something tells me, a year or two down the line, somebody's probably going to build Chuggies again. So oddly enough, um, what we burned down was a hot point of contention in the committee. Um, There were, there were, there were a good number of people who were very upset about the loss of Chuggies and were like, well, we could burn down the Black Bear Casino. Um, 
But again, I thought if we're doing arson, let's go. Let's go right to the heart. Let's rip it out. Let's burn down Chuggies. Um, and if nothing else, you know, maybe the civil case committee builds it next year and it's a contract dispute, right? I mean, it'll, like you said, it'll come back. I have faith that Chuggies will be rebuilt and will come back. But um, yeah, I mean, we, we knew we were burning down Chuggies before I announced this at Nationals and everything. So it was just kind of fun to, to lay down puns and see how much we could get away with before people <laughs> figured it out what we were doing. That's That's so funny and kind of heartening to know that even within the committee, there were people who uh, were... were maybe opposed initially to burning down chuggies right i I didn't know people were so attached to a place that doesn't exist (laughs) (laughs) well you know it's it's a it's a giant fake activity and here we are you know doing our podcast about it but i you know i i'll say this i think it's going to be a lot of fun obviously like in jest i say that about chuggies but i in some ways i actually think that like you were just saying, kind of go big or go home. Like if we're going to be doing this in our houses for some period of time, we may as well have something that, you know, prompts strong emotions. I feel like there are almost certainly going to be AMTA alums who show up to judge who are going to hear the, the you know, the state's opening statement and be like, wait, they burned down Chuggies? Like, I feel like that's going to be a constant source of shock. So I, I'm super excited to just get to work on this case. And, and most importantly, of course, you know, Neil, I, I know you're, you know, very busy. So thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And thank you for all the work that you do, all the hours that you put in to generate these cases. We, we know it's a lot of work and we're all really grateful. You're welcome. And uh, those that listen, shout out to my committee. Couldn't have done it without them. So a lot of hard workers there. I'm excited for the case as well. So um, we'll see how it goes. Yes, we will. I think it will be an interesting season one way or the other. Uh, thanks, Neil, for coming on the show. It's great to have you back. Uh, it's good to be in everybody's feed. Drew and I are working on some other episodes that we hope will be out before too long. Drew, of course, just started 1L and, and I've started up at Maryland <laughs> Law, so we're doing the best we can. But uh, we'll be back in your feed relatively soon. Uh, Drew, anything I missed before we wrap it up? Nope, I think you covered most of it. I just can't wait to see this case play out. I think it seems like a lot of fun and I'm hoping to get finding out some invitational results and see where we go very soon yeah it should be a lot of fun to talk about a lot of fun to break down uh good to talk to you neil and everyone else until next time this has been the mock review with ben and drew